Sometimes life is difficult and you just need a hand to lift you up. The Bible is full of those helping hands, but how do you access them? How do you apply them? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts via email, messaging us at ChristianQuestions.com, Facebook, and our website chat board. So, Jonathan, what is the topic for today? Well, Rick, our question is, how do I relight the fire of my Christian faith? Our theme text is found in John chapter 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So again, the question, how do I relight the fire of my Christian faith? When we think of Christian faith, we often think of those heroes past and present whose lives reflect the courage and fortitude needed to stand up for Christ in the face of an opposite world. We recall their drive, experiences, and actions, and we feel inspired. Then we look at our own lives, and it's at this point that we can often get totally depressed. Where's the passion, the conviction, and the heroic stand of my faith? How is it that life seems to keep getting in my way, and I don't always feel or act in accordance with the living faith that I see in others? Is there something wrong with me? Is my faith genuine? And if so, what do I have to do to put it in its rightful place regarding my daily life experiences? Is it even possible for me to become a hero of faith, even in a small way? So, Jonathan, a lot of questions about zeal and keeping it going and relighting the fire. So before we get started with the details, let's give you an overview, folks, of what's coming up in today's podcast. Look, we all want to live a brand of Christianity that exemplifies power and strength in God through Christ, but lots of things get in our way. We're going to isolate four of the big challenges to that life, beginning with our common foe, discouragement. And Jonathan, that's a big one. Everybody gets discouraged. We all suffer from it, but how do we put it in its place? Then there's depression. That's the next one we're going to deal with. Not everyone ends up on this road, but we're all affected by it. We're going to look at a biblical example of a great prophet who became thoroughly depressed and see what principles were applied in his faith to lift him out. And then there's the failure thing, defeat. I don't know, have you ever been defeated? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Defeat can detour the road to a powerful Christian character. So we will examine concrete principles that can help keep our failures in check. Failure happens, so we might as well learn to cope with it so we can live that powerful life in Christ. And finally, we're going to look at one of my favorite words. I just like the way it sounds, lethargy. (laughs) (laughs) Disengaging is one of those insidious things that can happen when we're not paying attention. Once it grabs hold of us, it can drain the power and passion right out of our Christianity. (sighs) Yeah, we're talking about that. We will uncover three things Jesus told us to combat 
to, to combat this. So, so first, though, Jonathan, before we get into those four things, we need to define what the fire of our Christianity even is. We need to know what it is we want to relight. And the first very important question is, are we relighting something to do with faith, or are we feeling like we need to relight a feeling? Is it faith, or is it feeling? So let's quickly define both. What is faith according to the Bible? Well, Rick, um, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Okay, so there's a concrete clarity in the biblical definition of faith. And the, the word for faith mean, actually means what? Persuasion, credence, conviction, reliance, and constancy. Okay, those are all very clear, firm, directed uh, descriptions of putting yourself into a, into a mode of thinking and a mode of being. When you're persuaded, when something has credence or there is conviction, there, there's something powerful behind that. Absolutely. So now faith is always the same Greek word in the entire New Testament. Okay, so wherever you see the word faith, it always, always, always comes from the same thing. And the important thing, Jonathan, is faith is not credulity. Now, credulity is not a word we use too often, so again, we need to define it, and we want to just take a few minutes and, and kind of compare the two. That's a good point, Rick. Uh, credulity means a readiness or willingness to believe, especially on slight or uncertain evidence. Gullibility is a great word to describe credulity. And the first thing we need to understand is a lot of people look at Christianity and think that Christians are credulous, are gullible, because, well, you're going to believe that, uh, so Jesus, or, or so, I'm sorry, so God parted the waters, so Jesus actually rose from the dead, huh? Ooh, you're going to believe that, huh? You, you know, I got a bridge to sell you, you know, in, <laughs> down in, in, in Florida, wherever it is. You know, the, the idea is people look at Christian faith and they think it's credulity. It is not. It is something much, much bigger, much stronger than that. And when we look at the Bible, what we see is clarity. We see context. We see a plan. We see actually science verified. We see mathematics. We see all of these things. We see prophecies fulfilled. That's not being gullible. That's saying, wow, look at these factual pieces of Scripture and how they, they come together for us. And we, we would look at the word credence and say we have found credibility on what we've looked at. Right. Credibility, and it's not gullibility. So faith is foundational. Feelings, which are really credulity-based, are fractional. And what I mean by fractional is they're only small pieces of what's necessary to build a strong Christian life. So if you're trying to build your faith on how you feel, danger. Yeah, there's, that's trouble. It is, because that's not how faith gets built. So this is a podcast for you. If you've struggled with that and saying, well, you know, I don't feel like I'm, uh, you know, I have the fire of my Christian faith anymore. What do I do? Uh, this is where we've got to really listen in and see how all of these things actually really, really work. So faith is what we're after, not feelings. So the first question now is, and then how then is faith lit up? What is it that, that has, we have to do to light up our faith? Fortunately, James gives us a very straightforward answer in James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. 
But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And I love this scripture because he's saying faith is not just believing that God is there. The demons believe that God is there. Believe me, they believe that God is there. He created them and they went sour, okay? So they believe and they shudder. But he says faith without works is useless. So what does faith need? It needs action. Okay. Sometimes this action is outward and obvious, and sometimes it's inward and private. In both cases, it is work, it's work, it's actions that set us apart from the world. That's the key to understanding the beginning of this conversation about faith and how it actually works. Let's take a moment. Let's go to a soundbite from Motivation Instincts Drive Incent- Motivation Instincts Drive Incentives, uh, Mrs. Bailey's AP Psychology. So Mrs. Bailey is an AP Psychology teacher, and she, this is from a, a YouTube video that she's got online from her psychology class, and in it, she's defining motivation. So motivation, our textbook definition, refers to a need or a desire that energizes behavior and directs it towards a goal. So these are two really important key terms to understand here. Energizing. When you say you're energizing a behavior, it means you're getting somebody to do something. They're they're, they're getting up, they're moving, they're doing, they're acting, okay? And it directs it. So the behavior also is going to have a direction. Now, notice that there's no positive or negative here. It's all just about the actual kind of like getting a human being to do something in a directed kind of focused towards a goal. So I, I like that because she, she helps us understand that, uh, you know, motivation is that energized uh, uh, approach in some kind of direction. And so when we look at that, we would suggest that true faith is the motivation that promotes spiritual zeal. Zeal is not faith. Zeal is built on faith. And we're going to get into how that all works. But Jonathan, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase that we want to use to define zeal throughout the podcast. What is it? That's right, Rick. Glorify God in action. Okay. Do you want to know if you have zeal? Are you glorifying God in action somehow or other? And that action doesn't have to be some big outward thing, but there has to be an action of glorifying God. The act of praying earnestly is a zealous act because it's glorifying God, even if you're praying over difficult things. And Rick, true faith cannot exist without zeal. See, and that's the point. I think that's what James was saying. Faith without works is dead. You have to be glorifying God in action somehow or other for your faith to actually be real. So the word for zeal, what, what does it actually mean in the scriptures? Well, Rick, it means properly heat, that is figuratively zeal in a favorable sense, ardor. Now, Rick, zeal can also be in a negative sense, yep. in an unfavorable one, jealousy as of a husband, figuratively of God, or an enemy, enemy or malice. So zeal, it's heat. So it's the heat. And a lot of times you think, well, that's got to be emotion. No, 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 no. It's much more than emotion. You can still have the heat without the emotion. And that's what we're going to look at through several examples in the scriptures. So let, let's take a practical look at this with John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And this is where we get our theme scripture from. This is zeal in action 
by the, the actions of Jesus. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what Jesus was doing was pretty unusual. You know, when we have our picture of Jesus and we have love and compassion and kindness and healing and teaching, we don't typically picture him angry and and turning tables over and saying, get these out of here right now. We don't picture that. No, we don't. But this is the, the disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal, the heat, the, the, the passion for the house of God will consume me. And Jesus was saying, you have made my father's house a place of business. How dare you do that? That is improper, inappropriate. It has to stop now. And I hope uh, Christianity today hears those words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Because too often we make our father's house a house of business a house of gain, a house of profit, and not a house of God. And we really do need to be careful with those things. So, you know, zeal isn't the ingredient that takes intellectual understanding and makes it a powerful, heart-moving force. This is not a feeling. This is bigger than emotion because it's driven by something very, very specific, and faith can drive it. Um, but we can also see that zeal can be applied very easily to the wrong things. Let's look at James 3.16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Of course, Rick, we should not be jealous and act in this manner, but when you're being attacked by others, it hurts. Mostly when those close to you uh, that cause much pain with their jealousy and selfish motives. But we need to rise above it and not be stumbled or be knocked off course. Like the hymn says, my goal is Christ and Christ alone. See, and and that's the thing. The word for jealousy is the same word for, you know, uh, his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. It's the exact same word. And you can see how it's the fire to protect something, for instance, it was to protect God's house in a very positive way. And the, 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 the jealousy is the fire to protect your ego in a very negative way. Exactly. It's still fire. Okay? So what we need to do is make sure that our zeal is founded on the right kinds of things. And each segment today, Jonathan, we're going to have a faith on fire insight because this is really about – Getting our faith to be back on fire. How do we do that? What do we, what do we have to do to get that going? And as we develop this, we're going to be developing very practical aspects. So what's our first faith on fire insight? It is amazingly easy to miss fire with our zeal and feed those things that actually take us away from true faith in God. Remember, zeal is glorifying God in action. Okay. It's easy to miss fire with zeal. And to feed what takes us away from God instead of feeding what brings us towards God. We have to understand how zeal works. Otherwise, 
we're going to end up feeding the things that take us away from God. And each segment, we're going to be building the foundation of understanding for how zeal works and how to properly feed it. You know, it's like, Jonathan, you have... Um, if, if somebody is uh, preparing for to run a race or for an athletic event and they're an athlete, they have to eat properly. And, sure. And if they don't eat the right kinds of things, oftentimes in the right kinds of order at the right times of day, they will not be at peak performance. Zeal is the same thing. We have to do that. We have to put our zeal in the right kinds of place, right situation. So having zeal for God is powerful and can even be contagious. It also needs protection. How can we be sure that the zeal, the heat we are seeking, is godly and not a human passion that will consume us? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. This is one of the most difficult areas of our lives to manage because it deals with the core of our emotional being. To begin to put it all straight, we're going to look at some of the reasons we may feel that our faith is losing its vitality. We're going to find a biblical example and then follow the biblical answer. In so doing, we avoid the make-up-the-remedy-as-you-go approach, which is too often a Christian, what we call a Christian principle. I'll just make up the remedy as I go. No, let's check the scriptures, find the remedy, and apply it, and then we can go. Um, you know, it's like, you know, I don't feel like I have zeal, so I'm just going to do this. Well, no, not so much. <laughs> There's got to be something. Don't set yourself up for failure. <laughs> well, you know, and, and Jonathan, we do that regularly. We don't mean to, but we do it anyway, and it's really, really, really too bad. This next soundbite is uh, from Simon, Simon Sinek. This is a... Um, Video, this is why you don't succeed. This is a, a really powerful, powerful video. Um, I think it's like 15 minutes long. I would encourage anybody to listen to the whole thing because it really helps put life in perspective. And while this particular soundbite is focusing on millennial, the millennial generation and the, some of the reasons that they have a hard time succeeding, the principle that he speaks apply to all of us. And so let's get started, and he's talking about the, the, um, the millennial generation and the things that they've been exposed to that previous generations were not, including the kind of parenting that they had. And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem, to compound it, is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed, Right. And so everybody sounds tough, and everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness, and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you got to do. And they have no clue. Right? You know, and he's right. There's very little toughness. And our, our world has programmed toughness out of us because... It's not politically correct to take a hard stand and to plow through things because you might make other people feel bad. Well, look, that, if you're a Christian, our zeal requires us to take a hard stand and move forward on things. So we're going to go through several zeal challenges, as we mentioned earlier. And what is the first zeal challenge that we face? Well, Rick, it's discouragement. 
Things don't go the way we had planned or expected. This discouragement is such a big, powerful thing because it happens to all of us. And many times it's because, uh, you know, we're in a situation we didn't expect. Uh, it was supposed to work out differently. The plans didn't pan out. Something didn't happen. If so-and-so would have done something, then I could have been better off. But, and now here I am stuck and it's really not so good. And now what do I do? So you you had some yeah points yeah Rick. Sa- uh, Satan to, points or something right yeah <laughs> I wanted to bring out some of Satan's goals oh uh, great <laughs> against against the Christians um, to to uh, trip them up okay. in their Christian walk and what I'm going to do Rick is I'm going to bring one of his goals out each segment okay and for discouragement the first one I wanted to, to bring out is Satan's goal is to confuse you. Okay. One of his goals is to confuse us. Um, um, you know, discouragement and disappointment are, are things that we all deal with. And, you know, you've heard the phrase, disappointment is his appointment. And, you know, and the idea is, well, you know, it's God's overruling and it could be for your good. Well, that's a great thing to say. And it's easy to say, but you're not the one discouraged. <laughs> you're not the one sitting here saying, you know, it, it didn't work the way it was supposed to. I don't know what to do, and I feel like everything has blown up around me. Let's look at a scriptural example of exactly that. Three days after Jesus' crucifixion, two disciples are dejectedly walking on the road to Emmaus. Now, they figure the Christian movement is done, it's crumbling, because Jesus is crucified and that's the end of everything, and it didn't seem like it was supposed to happen that way. So they're on this road, they're walking, Jesus catches up with them. And though they don't recognize him, and he, Jesus asks them what they're talking about. So we're going to drop in on this, this conversation in Luke chapter 24. It actually runs from verses 13 to 34, but we're just going to read selected verses. And we're going to start with part of verse 17. And they stood still looking sad so let's pause there for a second because they stood still and they were looking sad so they're walking along and jesus catches up with them and says hey gentlemen what's happening and you know they're they're talking and they're so dejected they stop when jesus seems like he doesn't know what's going on it says they stood still looking sad they were dejected and it was wearing on the outside they were utterly discouraged and so what happens verses 18 to 21 One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. So they're reciting their discouragement to Jesus, and they're shocked that, are you the only one in all of Jerusalem who does not know this? How can you not know this? I can imagine that Jesus on the inside has just got this big smile, and he's just waiting but on the outside, he's, he's, he's reading their hearts, and he's absorbing their discouragement. He's listening to it, and he's feeling it. And so they're telling him how 
difficult a time they're having because everything they hoped for was suddenly dashed. So their zeal, their fire had gone out. So how did, did. The, how, how did the fire reignite? Well, Rick, it reignites through biblical prophecy and enlightenment. Because what Jesus began to do, and we're not going to read the scriptures in the interest of time, is he began to teach them about the necessity for Christ's suffering as spoken by the prophets, and as a result, they were blessed to see the fulfillment of the prophecies just spoken. See, Jesus was reigniting their heads at this point. And here's a hint. To get your zeal back on track, you've got to go through your head first. You can tell if it's just emotion because it's all heart. But if you reignite your head first, then you are building something that can move. He feeds them prophecies. And then here's what happens when they get to the destination and they invite Jesus to stay with them for a meal. They had walked seven miles from Jerusalem. Verses 30 to 32 of uh, Luke chapter 24. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So what happens is they, their eyes are opened when they see him break the bread and bless the bread. And then he vanishes, and, they, and, and their response is, See, our hearts were burning. What was happening is their heads were being filled with truth. So their hearts were being reignited as a result. And when they saw him break the bread, then they could see that this was Jesus. And can you imagine having have been so discouraged and distraught and then to be, to, to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus after all this? Oh, it must have been amazing, Rick. And, and it was not just an amazing thing that happened to them, because what happens when their zeal for the faith was reignited is now they act on it. They had just walked seven miles to get to their destination uh, in, in Emmaus. What happens next? Verses 33 and 34. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven of those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen, and he has appeared to Simon. So they went all the way back, walking those seven miles again. See, that's zeal. They didn't walk back based on emotion. They walked back based on the, the, the clarity of seeing prophecy and seeing the prophecy fulfilled, and they needed to do something. That's zeal. Emotion doesn't carry you like that. That's zeal. So, so Jonathan, we're talking about discouragement, and it co- co- comes to all of us. What happens if discouragement lingers and we just don't feel like walking those seven miles? Well, Rick, it sounds to me like laziness, <laughs> unfortunately, and we, we do get there sometimes. But something that could help could be put up notes to remind yourself to focus. Uh, here's an example, uh, an attitude of thankfulness. Remember to count your many blessings. Go to God's word and, and read his precious promises and personalize them, you know, with your name. An example, Rick, he will never leave you nor forsake you, Deuteronomy 31.6. These will hopefully, Rick, uh, re-inspire us to not 
become lazy and tired and and just careless. See, and what you said, and, and you know, whether you realize it or not, is you feed your head first, and then you feed your heart. You put yourself back into the scriptural perspective. You've got to reset yourself. That's what makes our, our the fire of our Christianity truly relight. It's not how you feel by singing a hymn and saying, oh, praise the Lord. That's good. That's great. That's necessary. That's helpful. But that's not true zeal. And another important thing, Rick, prayer, yeah. that lifeline to God. We need to improve our prayer life if we start feeling that laziness. Uh, also seek fellowship with brethren um, to help that spiritual conversation encourage us. Attending Bible studies as often as we can, uh, even if we don't feel like it. And, and again, even if we don't feel like it, because it's not about how you feel. If you want to relight the fire of your Christian faith, decide today it's not about how I feel. It's about what my faith provokes within me based on the Word. Good, really good very, very practical applications of when we don't feel like walking those seven miles. But see, Jonathan, here's the thing. Zeal always needs help. Just because we're called and blessed does not mean we're self-sufficient. Doesn't mean that once you're called, everything's going to be great. Um, let's just pause here for a second, Jonathan, because Trish is, is here, and she's got a comment from Quora. Uh, we participate in Quora as Christian Questions, and we put a lot of questions out there, and we put questions out about relighting the fire of your Christian faith. And so, Trish, this is one of the answers. Yes, Eric, this is from Randall. He says, Refrain from focusing on yourself and instead focus on the needs of others. Volunteer and donate your time to the needy. It's great to help out at the homeless shelter, but go further and get to know them and help them. The need in the world is so great. The ill, the isolated, the elderly, the poor, the disabled, the mentally infirmed. Go out and find these people in your community. They might be attached to your church or maybe not. Whatever. The point is to help out where you can. Live your faith instead of just talking about it. You'll find enormous rewards. Great comment. Thanks, Trish. And uh, we're coming back to you later. Um, you know, his, his, his message is really simple. Live your faith. You know, Christianity is about living that example that is just giving and it's magnanimous. And, and even when we don't feel like it, if we can do it, you're helping somebody else. And you know what, Jonathan? If I don't feel like it, but I can help somebody else, who cares what I feel like? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so sometimes zeal needs help, okay, because our emotions get in the way. So we're not self-sufficient. Even the Apostle Paul suffered from serious discouragement and challenge. This next verse, Jonathan, these verses are really, really mind-blowing when you think about the greatness of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. We'll take it in a couple of pieces. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we were in despair even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. So the Apostle Paul says... We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. You know, I tried to find out, I did some study to try to find out what experience was this, and commentators are very divided on this. 
And it seems like there is a, an experience that he just really never shared the depth of. So wow. I think this was an experience that we don't have elsewhere in Scripture. Maybe not, I don't know, but that's kind of my, my, my conclusion based on, on, on looking into it. But, here, I mean, but here's what he says. So he was despairing of life itself. And you, you think of the Apostle Paul, you don't think of despair to that depth. You don't. Not, he was always strong. Right, until he wasn't. Yeah. But here's what he says as he comes through that. He said, we had this sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. So he's saying, I can look back and I see that it was to keep me from trusting in me. What he was doing is he's reigniting his head by looking at it and reasoning through saying, this is so difficult. I'm despairing of life, but God has not despaired of my life. If he can raise the dead, he can perform any miracle right. in my life. Right. And so it's, I can't depend on my feeling that I can't cope because God is bigger. And so what happens, uh, we jump to verse 11, and we see now how the, the heart gets uh, reignited as well. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So the apostle is saying that you have helped us. You helped to bring us back from this despair, this discouragement through your prayers because prayers make things different. So he's feeding, he's reigniting his heart as well through the prayers. So even the apostle Paul suffer deep, deep discouragement. So what's our faith on fire insight for this segment? Well, Rick, while discouragement can bring feelings of hopelessness, God's remedy can be applied through three things. Bible truth, spiritual understanding, which is well beyond feelings, and the prayers of others. Remember, zeal is glorifying God in action. Okay. Discouragement brings feelings of hopelessness. Discouragement does not bring hopelessness. It brings feelings of hopelessness. Ask the Apostle Paul. He knows. He just gave us that example. Ask those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They know. They gave us that example. What brings us back? Bible truth, spiritual understanding, and prayers of others. Those are some of the things that help to put our zeal back in place. Look, we all get discouraged. But the good news is that we have clear steps to take to fight it. Discouragement is one thing. What about when we are challenged to the point of feeling crushed? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. Sometimes our experiences have the ability to dismantle our zeal. When we are in a place in life that requires us to bend our energies toward just surviving, it seems like zeal becomes a distant memory. These experiences do require much by way of remedy. And yes, it's fortunate. The Bible gives us answers gives us lots of answers. So, Jonathan, we talked about discouragement as being something that can really, really get in the way of our zeal. And again, zeal is not feeling. Zeal is that 
glorifying God in action. It's a, it's a powerful internal movement that is thoroughly based on faith. That's what Christian zeal is. That's what we want to reignite. Did and I like the picture that you brought out, Rick. It starts in the head, and then later it goes to the heart. Right. And if we don't do the reigniting from the head first, all we're doing is feeding our emotions, and emotions are deceptive and will disappoint. They just will. So discouragement was the first zeal challenge. What's the second one? This is deeper now. Depression. Having been overrun by the weight of hard experiences. All right. Depression is really, really diabolical. And it can be clinical. It can be all kinds of reasons for it. Uh, before we get into any of the details on that, Jonathan, you had uh, Satan's goals. You know, that's right. Don't Another don't one. don't repeat these at home or something. I don't know. This just sounds weird. We're talking about Satan's goals here. <laughs> What's his next goal? Another one of his goals is to paralyze the followers of Christ. So, depression paralyzes. It does. Now look. Folks, depression is a serious matter, and we here at Christian Questions absolutely believe in getting appropriate medical help when you need appropriate medical help. Sometimes you can work your way through depression, and sometimes you can't. And when you cannot, it is entirely appropriate as a Christian to get the kind of help you need to get yourself back on your feet so you can cope again. That is not some lack of faith. That is not some lack of zeal. What that is, is sometimes we're wired in such a way that we have that kind of a tendency and we need that extra help. You know, if, 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 you, are, if you are born with, 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 uh, uh, with a, uh, a weakness in your legs, that is just an inherent weakness, you know, you can't say, well, how come you're not running the 100-yard dash? Because you can't. Maybe you need leg braces. So what? Just walk. That's the point. Sometimes depression... We just got to take care of it in the right ways. So don't be um, discouraged if it's something you need help with. It is not a lack of faith. That's what Satan would love for you to believe. He wants to diabolically confuse you in those areas. Let's go to uh, back to Simon Sinek. Uh, this is why you don't succeed. Remember, we talked about this is a Facebook generation, and you know there's not a lot of toughness. Well. He's going to talk about the, the other side of that and, and what happens instead of the toughness in this tech-driven world. Now, let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good. Right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> Because it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back ten times to see if and if it's going. If our if my Instagram is growing slower, I would. I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore? Right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. That's highly, highly scary. It is. You know, the idea that what happens with the social media engagement replaces those addictive behaviors because it's the same chemical being released. We got to be careful, especially with our kids. Be careful with this stuff. You know, 
we won't we won't get down go down a road of technological discussion today. But uh, if you if you go if if you go out to dinner with somebody, you, you your wife, and you sit there and you're both on your phones, something's wrong with that picture. How about that? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a look, a scriptural look, a at a prophet who suffered great depression. We're going to talk about the prophet Elijah. Now, the prophet Elijah, in the context of that we're speaking now, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, he had accomplished an amazing, miraculous, courageous, faith-filled victory over Baal. He, he showed God's power, he destroyed the prophets of Baal, and it was an amazing victory for godliness in Israel. And it, you know, it's the it's the kind of victory that you write songs about. It's so dramatic what happened there, and we don't have the time to go into it. So he wins this incredible battle, and then what happens? First Kings nineteen verses one to four. Let's do one and two to start. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying. So may the gods do to me and evermore if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Jezebel's, the queen's response is, okay, Elijah, you're dead meat. 24 hours from now, you are going to be dead. So the reward that he sees initially, first of all, he did bring rain back to Israel, which you'd think... Everybody would have said, wow, that's pretty awesome. After three years? Yeah, three and a half years without rain, and, yeah. and now he brings it back. But no, they're saying, got to kill him, and you got to kill him right now. So the, and so what does he do? He's afraid. Verses three and four. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Think about this for a moment. Talk about depths of depression. He had scored this incredible victory for God by stepping out in faith in a dramatic way. And the result is they're chasing him, trying to kill him, and he's running for his very life, and he stops a day's journey into the wilderness where he figures they won't find him quite yet. And he prays and he says, God, just take my life. I'm no better than my father's. What he's saying is, I tried really hard, I worked really hard, and I failed miserably, and I'm just like my father's. We, we, we've all let you down, and just, I'm, I'm done. Take my life. I mean, you, you look at that and you feel the depression within him. He's serious. This is not just a, this, this is not a feeling. This is a, a conviction inside of him that my life is now worthless. He gave up. He did. You know, sometimes our victories are disguised in the dark clouds of dashed expectations. We will see that this victory of Elijah's was a victory, but it did not come out victoriously the way he had imagined, and the result was exactly the opposite on the surface, and his life was in danger. So, how does the fire reignite for Elijah? What happens next? Well, Rick, the angel made him eat. We need spiritual food beyond prophecy. 
And I think th- there is a there is a great lesson in what we're about to read. This is First Kings chapter nineteen, verses five through ten. And again, we're going to read selected pieces of this. But here, l- let's just just follow through the next few verses, verses five through eight. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, "Arise, eat." So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. So you got a lot of things happening. When you get to the point of of depression, one of the things you just want to do is sleep. You're right. Because that's the way to get away. And he lays down to sleep under this juniper tree, and he's probably, now, you know, I don't know this for sure, but just by the previous verses, he's probably saying, Lord, I'm going to sleep, and I hope I don't wake up. You know, because he is so, so depressed inside. And this angel says, look, you need to eat. And I think that's a spiritual lesson for us, that when we are at our lowest, we need to eat spiritually. God's word. Yeah, and and like you said previously, you know, whatever it takes with the, with notes or with fellowship or something, get back into the word somehow or other. And I think that's what this is a picture of for us. Arise and eat. So he does. And he and he does it, and then what happens? He lays down again. Because he ate, but it it, it was it, yeah, okay, it was okay, but I still want to sleep. And I still don't want to wake up. But the angel said, "No, no, no." You have a journey to take. It's too much for you. Eat. He does. And then he goes 40 days. <laughs> That's a miracle. That is a miracle. So there was this reigniting because he was fed spiritually by an angel. He was fed. We need to look at that and, and, and absorb the, the meaning of that. You know, the word angel means messenger. Yes, it does. In, in, in our lives, we're not going to get a visitation from an actual angel from heaven, but I may get a visitation from an angel of God named Jonathan. You never know when I need that help. So arise and eat. Let that, let that angel messenger of God tap you on the shoulder and say, you've got a journey to take. Well, Rick, depression is hard to manage. Even after being strengthened, Elijah still struggled. So, in the strength of this food, he goes 40 days. And you think, okay, he's beyond it. Let's go to verses 9 through uh, 10 or 11, whatever it is here, in 1 Kings chapter 19, 9 through 10. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he's still discouraged. He's still discouraged, and he says, I've been zealous. I've, I've had heat for you, O Lord, and, and, and I've done what I was supposed to do, but now I'm left here all by myself. Now, he's just been miraculously delivered, but he still feels alone because he doesn't feel like he has the human fellowship that he needs. 
So how does the fire uh, again reignite? What happens? God not only shows Elijah the power of his presence in quietness, he assures him he is not alone. Rick, there were 7,000 others in 1 Kings 19, 11 through 18. Yeah. We need to find God's presence in the quietness, and we need to acknowledge and embrace the fact that we are not alone. And see, that's important. We need to find God's presence in the quietness. That's reigniting our heads, okay? Get quiet, get back to God, and acknowledge and embrace, reigniting our hearts, that we are not alone. And you think about it, there's 7,000 others. Think about, Jonathan, this is something I think most of us maybe have not considered. Think about the inspiration that those other 7,000 individuals who did not bow the knee to Baal would have received, the inspiration they would have received after Elijah's decisive victory over Baal. Oh, that would have been huge. And see, he didn't see them be inspired. No, he didn't. But this is now more than 40 days afterwards. They would have found out and would have had the inspiration that God exists in Israel and I stand for God. So he was successful. He just didn't see it right up front. And sometimes with our depression, there are successes that we just are not able to see, but are there and can be seen afterwards. So, so Jonathan, what are some practical ways that we can help others rekindle their depressed zeal? Well, Rick, remind them of the value they bring to the body of Christ. Ask them how the Lord called them to follow Christ. What miracles has God done in their lives? Just like Elijah. I mean, he had two meals and walked 40 days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, let's remember, Elijah, a miracle just took place while you're being depressed here. Um, we are all forgetful, and some more than others, like me, we all need reminders. Also, focus on all Jesus suffered for us. Our trials and experiences, they can't compare to his. What a Savior. Absolutely. So practical examples of just, you know, being reminded and, you know, again, feed your head so your heart can respond. Here's the thing, Jonathan, zeal always needs help. Why? Just because we may have done wonderful works does not mean we are limitless. See, the thing is, Elijah did some of the most amazing things you'll ever see anywhere. Didn't mean he was without limits. He was still a faulty human being. And it's okay because zeal is not emotion, it's not feeling, it's something deeper, and even through the difficult times, it can still exist. So Trish, you're here now with another Quora comment, I understand. Yes, I am. This is from Cole. It says, sometimes we have lots to give, and we should. Our time, our encouragement, our resources, our light. Other times, we are hurt or sad, or our faith is weak. And during those times, we need to receive, to embrace the love from others, to accept others' offerings of solace and so forth. That's what church is for, not just going to the chapel on Sundays, but churches at large. We need our brethren, our sisters, sometimes more than they need us, and that's okay. All right, good. Thank you. Thank you. Another good comment that just says, look, you've got to engage with others. Engage with others on a spiritual level. So that's really important. Second Corinthians, again, zeal needs help because even if we've done wonderful work, it doesn't mean we're limitless. Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. See, there's the key. The treasure's in an earthen vessel and the earthen vessel is cheap. 
Okay, it breaks. But it's it's that way on purpose. So we know that the power is not of us. That's where zeal can come from. Again, that's beginning to feed our heads. Verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Fighting that fight. Even though these things happen, the apostle says, we don't give up, we don't give up, we don't give up. Zeal sometimes isn't shown in, in, in victory. It's shown in not falling in defeat. You know, I like that. Yes. I like that, Rick. Sometimes we need to just realize that if we don't fall in defeat, that's zeal personified. That's good. Verses 10 and 11. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Christ's sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. Okay, so again, we who live are constantly delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That's head. That's reminding us of the fundamentals of what Christianity is, so that the life of Jesus, our heart, may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. Feed your head first with scriptural, spiritual truth, so then your heart can benefit from it, and then you do something with it. What's our faith on fire insight for this segment, Jonathan, dealing with depression? Well, Rick, while depression can bring us to utter hopelessness and a feeling of resignation, being fed inspiration with the word, finding and believing in God's presence and embracing true fellowship can begin to rekindle our zeal. Remember, zeal is glorifying God in action. And remember, it's a feeling of resignation. If God is not resigning, we do not need to be resigned, even though we may feel that way. So look, if you are not prone to depression, think about what you just learned to help those of us who are. Discouragement and depression are huge challenges for our zeal. What about when we simply fail? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. Facing defeat in many ways uh, is in many ways different than facing more heart-based challenges. When we lose a battle, we have been engaged. We've been putting forth effort and zeal, and we simply come up short. The doubts that can come from these experiences can and will test us in powerful, powerful ways. So, Jonathan, next we're going to be looking at defeat. We talked about discouragement, which happens to all of us. Depression, which may not happen to all of us, but many of us, but we're all affected by it. And now we're going to be looking at defeat in a moment First, let's go back to uh, Mrs. Bailey's AP Psychology, uh, Motivation, Instincts, Drives, incent- and Incentives. And she's now going to be talking about, in this short soundbite, drives and incentives. And again, zeal has everything to do with these things. Now, incentives tend to be external things that appeal to our needs, okay, or they trigger our um, adverse feelings, but they can be used to pull us in. So, for instance, maybe you're not hungry, but you drive by In-N-Out Burger and you smell it, right, that external smell of the yummy, delicious French fries and hamburgers, they're going to pull you in, right? It's kind of like that unconscious, like all of a sudden you're driving to In-N-Out Burger, even though you're not necessarily hungry. So, drives push, incentives pull. They're They're... 
external. Drives are internal, incentives external, and then there's the, the push and pull kind of dynamic. See, this is important to understand because this is the way we physiologically work. Drives and incentives have to be carefully monitored and challenged as they're often not zeal-driven. Okay, they're all, well, look, they can be jealousy-driven or something else, but they're not zeal-driven from the standpoint of Christian zeal, standing up for godliness. So we can have internal drives that are Christian zeal-driven. We can have incentives that are external, drive, external motivation for us, but we've got to make sure it comes from the right place. And that's when, you know, why we want to spend some time now on the zeal challenge of defeat. What is that about? Having put in strong spiritual effort, we fail, or we don't see clear enough tangible results. See, sometimes it's failure, and sometimes, well, you, you finish, and it's like, I don't know, was that a failure, or was that a victory, or was that a nebulous sort of to be announced later, you know? <laughs> what happened with this particular experience? Sometimes we don't even know, but, you know, we all go through failures, and, you know, Jonathan, you in the past have talked about a lot about some of your own past failures, and they were... Uh, Got to be honest with you, they were whoppers. <laughs> yeah, they were big ones. <laughs> but the Lord is good, brother. <laughs> well, you know, and that's the point. That's the point is sometimes the biggest failures eventually come the greatest spiritual victories and the birth of true zeal. So let's take a look at Peter. Now, Wait, the, before we do, Rick. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, that's right. You wanted to talk on about one, one more of Satan's goals. I, I, I'm not really interested in talking about it, but we have to be careful. Yeah. About it. Okay. Go ahead. And this one is Satan wants to knock us off course. You know, and and that has everything to do with defeat. Knocking us off off course is just like a defeat if we are it walking is. walking the narrow way. So we've got to be careful because he wants to do that. He will do whatever he can, and he'll use our own physical drives and incentives to do that. So I can knock myself off course because I allow that, those satanic influences into my life. I've got to be careful because my Christian zeal is different than that. It's higher than that. Again, the Apostle Peter, classic example of a follower whose strength was also his weakness. The Apostle Peter had this incredible strength to stand up and stand out. But until it was fully developed, that strength oftentimes proved to be weak. We've talked about this event many times, but it's very, very fitting in the context of defeat right here. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. You know, because we know the story so well and we read that part about Peter standing up and, you know, the first time he stands up, he says, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And, you know, you look at that and you say, I admire that desire to stand for, for Christ. You know, you admire his... He was being courageous. He was. And he was willing to put his, 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 his words out there in front of everybody else. 
Exactly. And he did. But here's the thing that Peter missed. Okay? Defeat is bad enough. But there was specific warning. And the warning was even based on Old Testament prophecy. Oh, my. Because Jesus just said, and he quoted the scripture. He said, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. So he's quoting a prophecy. It's going to happen. Right. And Peter basically ignores the prophecy because he wants to be strong. So you admire the desire to be strong. But you see, that desire for him to be strong at that moment was not based on faith. It was based on credulity. Oh, good point. Because he was believing in him. Yep. If he was working by faith, he would have believed in the prophecy that Jesus had just spoken. But he couldn't see it. He couldn't hear it because his feelings grew too big. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the other disciples have said the same thing. So you have that, 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 that prophecy-based warning that Jesus gave. Later on, after Peter has denied Jesus two times, we're going to drop into the story, and you all know what happens. Luke chapter 22, verses 59 through 62. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said to him, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So it's interesting because the first two denials had happened. And then the scripture says about an hour had passed. So Peter has time to process his way through those. And the interesting thing is, even though he denied he knew Jesus those two times, he didn't leave. He still stayed. So you can see that his heart is in the right place, but his heart is not acting based on that true, deep zeal of faith. It's still acting based on how he feels he should be. And that third denial comes around, and he's close enough. And this is, this is the hard part of this, Jonathan, is he's close enough to Jesus where Jesus can see him, and he could see Jesus. And apparently close enough where Jesus could hear the words. Because it says, as soon as he said it, um, a rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He just looked at him. And Peter remembered. And then his world came crashing down. Peter's zeal was engaged. But it was built on credulity. It was built on gullibility of believing in himself. Remember the Apostle Paul in a previous segment, you know, said, you know. I don't trust in myself. Right, right. Only God who can raise the dead. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. And Peter had not yet learned that. So he had zeal, but it was misplaced. So, Jonathan, practical question here. How do you cope with such a crash and burn experience? Because for Peter, this was a major crash and burn experience. Proverbs twenty four sixteen and 17, a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. Why would we glory in someone else's failure? Who has it failed? No man may boast before God. Remember in 1 Corinthians one twenty nine, be careful. Pride will be the enemy if we don't humble ourselves, get back up, 
stand up for Jesus. You know, and it's interesting. Pride will be the enemy if we don't humble ourselves. Now, now, Peter, you know, I, I can't say that it was, it was pride that, that made him say those things, because I think he really, really, really believed it. What it was, Jonathan, was immaturity in faith. And I'm thinking about the pride after the defeat that he couldn't go back to Jesus. If, if he, after that denial, walked away and said, I can't, you know, I can't appear to any of the disciples anymore. Um, it, it, I just can't do it. That, that would be pride blocking him from humbling himself, asking for forgiveness and moving forward. And, and what we will see is that, you know, Jesus found him and Jesus made special mention of him after the resurrection. You know, tell the apostles and Peter that I'm back. Wow, that was special. Yeah, because it was so much to recover from. But the point is, we can recover from the zeal challenge of defeat. So how did the fire reignite? What, what was Jesus going to have to do here? Jesus would have to clearly show Peter his confidence in Peter's potential. Okay, so we need to revisit our own potential and God's past and present providences in our own lives, just Amen. like Peter needed to do. So Jesus does that. Jesus clearly shows Peter his confidence in Peter's own potential. We're going to jump now to John 21, verses 15 to 17. This is after Jesus is raised, and this is when Jesus reinstates Peter with, with loving clarity and focus. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, ten my sheep, ten my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. See, the lesson was being learned, and it needed to be learned, and Peter needed assurance that his heart and his potential were bigger than his failure. And you know, Jonathan, here's the thing. I think, you know, we were talking about getting it through your head first and then into your heart. Yes. I think the first two, Peter, do you love me more than these, were meant for Peter's head because he needed to get it back straight inside of his mind of the important things. And of course, he knew that he loved Jesus. The third one, where Jesus asked him again, he says, Lord, you know all things. It's like, why are you asking me? That's when it sunk into his heart. Ah, that makes sense. And I think that you feed your head with the words of Jesus so they can get into your heart. Forget the feeling, forget the emotion, but find the zeal, the drive that changes things. That's where it goes. Okay, and I think it's head first. Heart second, just like always. So, but again, zeal needs help. Why? Zeal is consistent while emotion is not, and the two need internal separation. We have to make sure we know the difference between zeal and emotion. And Jonathan, we're going to pause here for a second. Trish has got another comment from Quora on our question about relighting the fire of our Christian faith. Go ahead, Trish. Yes, this is from Karen, and she says, We can relight the fire through prayer. Jesus said, when we ask the Father in his name, it will be granted. And always remember that God's time and our time is different. 
and that even the most historic figures in the Bible all went through periods of strife and struggle. Many felt at times that God had turned his back on them, even Jesus himself. All right, so good. Thank you, Trish. Good, great comments from Quora, folks. We really enjoy your comments there, as well as through all of our other social media channels. And uh, we like to, to share those comments uh, on the uh, in, in our podcast when we can get them and they, and they fit into our conversation. So please do keep them coming. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Trish, for bringing those to us. So, Jonathan, let's take a look now at the Apostle Peter after the fact, long after the fact. Zeal and, and emotion are coexist, but they're not the same. Peter learned to separate them. And we know this by 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Okay, pause there for a second, Jonathan. In obedience to the truth, what is that doing? That's reigniting your head. The head, that's right. Fervently love one another... From From the the heart. You do the head first. And that's why we can say zeal is not emotion. It's feeding the head, aligning ourselves to obedience to the truth so that we can act through through the push of our hearts. Go ahead. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So really, the Apostle Peter, having fallen so hard in that early experience in his life, later in his life is saying, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. He knew what real agape, selfless love was. He learned it. Love, fervently love one another from the heart. He's, so he is teaching others what Jesus taught him. And incidentally, this was fulfilling Jesus' request to tend his sheep and feed his sheep and, and shepherd the flock. So, Jonathan, as we, as we begin to wrap this segment up, what is our faith on fire insight in dealing with defeat, which happens to all of us? Well, Rick, defeat could be a tool of definition as it helps us see the clarity of our purpose, the flaws in our emotions, and the needed strength of our zeal. Remember, zeal is glorifying God in action. Zeal is glorifying God in action. But here's the thing. Defeat can be a tool of definition. It can be a tool that helps us see the clarity of our purpose. There is no better way to learn than to walk through the valley of defeat. Because once you have to go pick up the pieces, you're already broken apart. It's easy to figure out the pieces as you put them back together because they're all individual now. You don't have to see through anything. It's all right there. It's a great tool of definition. The Lord uses that for us so that our zeal can be intact and strong and moving forward. So, look, we've all heard it before. Failure is a stepping stone. Failure is a stepping stone. Oh, and failure is a stepping stone. Discouragement, depression, and defeat are all dramatic reasons for losing our fire. What about plain old lethargy? 
Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. You know, when all is said and done, when we have had to face these clearly defined challenges, there is another challenge that is more creeping and insidious that we need to watch out for. It is lethargy, simply disengaging our zeal because we are comfortable or generally tired or we're regrouping after a hard experience. So, Jonathan, in this segment, we want to look at lethargy. We want to look at the idea of disengaging. So... um, I'm going to go to Simon Sinek one more time here. But, you know, think about it. The four challenges we're discussing are discouragement, depression, defeat, and disengagement. And uh, just easier, hopefully, to remember them, the four D words. And it's like you don't want a D on your report card, right? No way. <laughs> so we've got to stay away from these. Uh, but let's get uh, back to Simon Sinek. You know, he's talking about the millennial generation and some of the, the challenges that they have. And he talked in the last segment, uh, last soundbite rather, of, uh, about how dopamine is the mental, the, 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 the chemical that's released in your mind when you are engaging in social media. And it's the same chemical that's released when we smoke and when we drink and all those kinds of things. It's very addictive. Here's where it brings us. We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down... (laughs) But that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing... chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Some people quite by accident discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains and for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress, that's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks, right? What's happening is because we're allowing unfettered access to these dopamine-producing devices and media, basically it's becoming hardwired. And what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. So what he's saying is, you know, we, we are so sure and clear about making sure our kids don't have access to, you know, alcohol and tobacco and those kinds of things because we don't want them to get addicted to such things. And yet we give them technology and we don't give it a second thought. Oh, trouble, Rick. Same kind of addiction. And what happens, Jonathan, oftentimes with social media. Now, look, we use social media. You know, there's a good way to use social media. Not a good way to use social media. True. Christian questions. Good way to use social media. (laughs) Don't get addicted to it. You know, make sure you, you stay engaged in the world around you. But it disengages us from life. So our zeal challenge here is disengaging, and, and what can be some of the causes? Well, Rick, being too busy, too comfortable, or having quietly settled for lukewarm spirituality, which is neglecting our spiritual feeding. Okay, and it really comes down to being able to be fed spiritually. You know, if um, we follow spiritual feelings, 
we end up neglecting spiritual feeding. And we got to be careful of that. And Jonathan, you have one more goal of Satan, don't you? I do, Rick. You, and it's let's get it over with. <laughs> his goal is have us give up. Right. Disengage. Have us just stop. Like it's not worth it. Well, the, the seventh stage of the Church of Revelation was guilty of exactly that. And you know, different Christians interpret the stages, the, the seven churches in Revelation, in different ways. We we look at the interpretation of those as stages of the church throughout the entire age of the gospel. We look at ourselves as living in the time of that seventh stage of the church. So the That's message right. that goes to that stage particularly applies to us right he's here. Point, he's pointing to you and me. Yes. Yes, he is. So Revelation three fourteen to 17. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, that so much reminds me of that last soundbite from Simon Sinek. You know, he's talking about the dangers of, of dopamine and in technology, the addictive uh, habits to that. And we look at technology <coughs> excuse me, as, as a real sign of wealth in so many ways. We can connect, we can have conversations, we can friend this and follow that and post here and, and uh, you know, uh, respond there. We've got all of that, and those are all great things. But, the, you know, from a Christian, we've got to be careful because the, the problem can be you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There are several issues that arise out of the potential comfort of wealth that are here listed. Now, look, doesn't say that wealth is bad, but what happens with Christian zeal is that if we sort of can feel like we can settle in because we've got it all together, we are disengaging and we really are not wealthy as Christians at all. So we've got to really focus on this, Jonathan, for a few minutes here. How does the fire reignite when we are in the disengaging aspect of living? You know, uh, Jesus gives clear advice for this disengagement, actually in three different steps. And before we go to those steps, Jonathan, Sunday go to meeting Christianity. Living Christianity while you're at church on Sunday or maybe with your family, but when you go back to work, you're not. That's disengaging. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is 24-7, period. And if we're not there and not moving that way because our heart is pressing us that way, because our zeal is pressing us, then we've got to really, really look at ourselves and say, where, where have I lost my zeal? Well, there are three fixes that Jesus talks about. What's the first fix? Well, Rick, it's fix the purpose of your life. Okay, the purpose. Fix the purpose of your life. And we find that in Revelation 3, verses 18 through 20. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Okay. Buy from me gold refined by fire. So, Jonathan, when you hear about gold refined by fire, what is it that you think about from a scriptural standpoint? Well, uh, the refining process, um, everything that bubbles off of the gold, the, the dross, um, just 
makes the gold pure and gets rid of all the junk and the, the muck around it. And you know what happens is that stuff rises to the top and because gold is heavier. And when it rises to the top, it needs to be skimmed off, carefully skimmed off. And the, the process has to be regulated and it has to be uh, monitored by someone who knows what they're doing so that you end up with pure gold. So, you know, when, when he says in Revelation you know, 3, verse 18, I advise from you to buy of me gold refined by fire so you can become rich, what's, what, what is Jesus telling us? Well, Rick, he's saying, in your present state, you're not rich. <laughs> you're just comfortable. <laughs> okay. Refined gold, submit to the testing necessary for complete faithfulness to the divine call. So he's saying, look, you're not rich. You're just comfortable. You've confused the two. Because Christian riches are not earthly riches. Earthly riches can often equal comfort, and we as Christians can get too physically comfortable to keep our Christianity vibrant and zealous. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have money. That's not, that's not what is being said here, and that's not what we're suggesting. What it means is we need to keep things in perspective. He's saying, buy of me gold refined by fire— be willing to go through the heat of purification so that you can become cleaner in my sight. So fix the purpose of your life. Is the purpose to be comfortable or is it to be faithful? You got to choose. Fix the purpose. That's the first thing. And Jonathan, that's a head thing. Okay? Oh, oh it is. Yes, you're right. Zeal has to come through our head first. The purpose of our life is scriptural refining. What's the second fix? Fix the process of your life. Okay, and I think this is also a head thing. And, and that, again, this is Revelation chapter 3, finishing verse 18. And white garments, so that, that you may be clothed yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will be revealed. Will okay. not be revealed, sorry. <laughs> okay, so the process of your life. He's saying, well, well okay, instead of me saying, what's Jesus telling us now about the process of our life? Your present comfort is not recognizable as a Christian. Okay, okay, well, let's pause there for a second. Your present comfort is not recognizable as Christian. Now look, folks, if we are looking for our Christian zeal, we need to be able to look in the mirror and say, is my present comfort level what I'm comfortable with? And sometimes we're comfortable with our discomfort, okay? We're just, that's in our comfort zone. And if it's in our comfort zone, we like it, even if we don't like it. Even if we're miserable, we like it. Yes, yes, many of us, (laughs) have misery in our comfort zone, and we're just content to have it. But the question is, is that comfort recognizable as Christian? Now continue. And, and, and Rick, I, I love the picture of the white garment. Clothe yourself with Jesus' righteousness to cover your sinfulness. Okay, so clothe yourself with Jesus' righteousness. This is the process of our lives. We have to, we have to cover ourselves with his righteousness, and that covers our sin, uh, sinfulness. Trish, you had a thought, question? I was just thinking that um, what it sounds like you're saying is that we're being lulled to sleep spiritually yeah. by this addictive, envi- addictive environment we live in. Because it's even if you're busy, whether it be living your life or even busy in Christian things, having the cell phone and the computer and everything right at your fingertips, it's just, it sucks you in. Yeah. And it put you to sleep spiritually. You're right, you're right. Being lulled to sleep, lulled into complacency 
That's not a good way to be. That's not how Jesus did it. And that's not how the Apostle Paul did it. That's not how we're taught to do it. That has nothing to do with zeal, Rick. No, it has everything to do with stopping zeal. So we've got to fix the purpose of our life and the process of our life. And then there's a third fix, and I think this is the one that's the heart fix based on fixing the purpose and process. Jonathan, what is that third fix? Fix the perceptions of your life. Okay, perceptions, what we see. And again, we go back to verse uh, 18 of Revelation uh, chapter 3. And I have to anoint your eyes that, so that you may see. Okay, so what's Jesus telling us with this eye salve business? Heal your distorted vision of Scripture and life to clearly see what is required of you. Okay, the problem of the last stage of the church is they're not strong in their zeal. They are lukewarm, and there's nothing worse than tepid water. I mean, you drink tepid water, it just feels terrible. Like, ew, make it hot or make it cold, but none of this. And that's why he says, I'll spit you right out, because it's not what you're supposed to be. The perceptions, what you see. We have to make sure that we are digging into Scripture to try to really find what it means. And we need to understand that our lives need to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we can, we've got to see those things. So the three fixes. What are they again, just the three fixes? Fix the purpose of your life fix the process of your life, and fix the perceptions of your life. Okay, why? Because Jesus wants us to have genuine zeal for him and his cause, verses 19 and 20 of Revelation 3. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Be zealous and repent. And he says, if anyone hears my voice, that's reigniting your head. Okay, it's the intellectual recognition and opens the door. That's reigniting our hearts. That's what we have to do, especially at this time when it's so easy to disengage. But again, Jonathan, zeal needs help. Why? It's easily hijacked consistently test the direction of your zeal against your truest objective. It is too easy to think you've arrived. And we have to be so careful about assuming that I'm good. Oh, yeah, I'm good. No problem. I got this. No, you don't. Okay? We just, got, just remember all these examples. Remember Elijah. Remember the Apostle Peter. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember the Apostle Paul. Remember all of these things. Philippians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Let's just read the first part of verse 12 to start. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Here again, the Apostle Paul. He's saying, look, I haven't already obtained. I'm not already perfect. I have work left to do. So what does he say? But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he's focusing his mind and focusing his action. And again, the head and heart thing just jump right out again. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting, that's a head thing. That's saying to, to himself, I will focus my brain and my mind on that which is in front of me, not that which has happened. And you know, the Apostle Paul could have focused on his past life and gotten all kinds of discouraged and depressed for the things he had done. 
True. But he or, did. Or he could have had himself on the back and look how many churches I started. So either True. way, Rick. Either, either way. way. Right. Either way, he says, I'm not looking behind. I am reaching forward. That's the heart. That's where zeal comes in. When the head engages, the heart can follow. He says, I, now I can press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call. Verse uh, 15 and 16. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So you've got to get up, wake up, move up, and start and start making your zeal something really important to focus on and be clear about. Our final faith on fire inside Jonathan for today's podcast is what? Zeal is the action that expresses our gratitude for God's grace and power directing our lives for the purpose of our faithfulness to the call. Are you thankful? Show it. Remember, zeal is glorifying God in action. So zeal is the action that expresses our gratitude for God's grace and power in our lives. We have to be action-oriented, even if that action is internal, even if that action is something that's quiet that nobody else sees. You know, zeal is expressed sometimes in waiting. Zeal is expressed sometimes in, in, in just holding on to the depth of trial. Those are expressions of zeal that God looks at because they glorify him because we're holding on. We're not letting go. And folks, remember, zeal is not how you feel. It's that action that glorifies God that's based on real, true Christian faith. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We've certainly enjoyed talking with you about such important things and, and four areas where zeal can get hung up. Discouragement, depression, defeat, and disengaging. And look, zeal is a choice. Make the choice. Get your head straight and let your heart follow. Think about it. Folks, listen, we do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes, in Google Play, in Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we will be talking about what is the meaning of loyalty, the true meaning of loyalty. So until next week, be zealous. Think about loyalty. Talk to you then. <laughs>